You are listening to Killer. This is case number 27, Skylar Niece. Lock your doors, bolt your windows, and turn off the lights. We're about to begin. A July 4, 2012 tweet from the account of 16-year-old Skylar Niece read, quote, It really doesn't take much to piss me off. Sick of being at fucking home. Thanks, friends. Love hanging out with you all, too. End quote. Skylar, a bright girl with blue eyes, brown hair, and dimples, was extremely studious. She enjoyed reading, held a 4.0 GPA, and was an honors student at University High School in Mon County, West Virginia, near Morgantown. She was an only child to her parents, Dave and Mary Niece. Skylar had been upset with two of her best friends, Sheila Eddy and Rachel Schof. The trio had been friends for quite some time. Skylar and Sheila had been close since they were around seven or eight years old. Sheila was described by Skylar's parents as the fun one and more of a wild child. Their daughter, Skylar, by contrast, was responsible and a bright student, often offering advice to Sheila, trying to help guide her. The pair were drawn to each other. During their freshman year at UHS in 2010, they met Rachel Schof. Rachel was a Catholic school grad. She came from a strictly religious home where her parents were divorced. Rachel and Skylar seemed to compete to be Sheila's best friend. The three friends were reminiscent of a teenage drama you would see on television. Skylar was the loyal friend and companion, compassionate and extremely bright. Rachel was tall and had red, vibrant hair. She was very religious and starred in many school plays. Sheila was up for anything. She was extremely charismatic and the fun one. The group spent a lot of time communicating, as many teens do, digitally. The group would often text or trade tweets, and over time, the girls sent over 9,400 tweets. Most of the stuff they tweeted were just random thoughts that a young girl may have, like these from Rachel. Quote, all I want right now is cheesecake. Or, quote, don't make a permanent decision for a temporary emotion. And, Quote, Breakfast Club is my all-time favorite movie, end quote. Skylar would tweet things like, Mosquitoes are disgusting creatures from hell. It amazes me how the moon seems like it jumps across the sky when you drive like two feet. And, quote, I stop listening as soon as my teacher says it's not on the test. And finally, some of the tweets shared by Sheila, quote, It's okay if you hate me as long as I hated you first. And, shit, I love my hair long. I never gonna get it cut. And, Stepdad, stop walking around the house without a shirt. It's gross. Not to mention your boobs are bigger than mine are. You may be asking yourself, what's the point of sharing these tweets? The point is to show just how much of these girls' lives end up in the digital world. Everything these girls deal with in each moment is so important to them that it gets posted. During the spring of 2012, Skylar tweeted, quote, Too bad my friends are living lives without me. Sheila and Skylar had been fighting quite a bit, according to some UHS classmates. At one point during their sophomore year, Daniel Hovater recalled being at a practice for Pride and Prejudice. Rachel had her phone up to her ear, and she was laughing. She was like, listen to this. Sheila and Skylar were fighting on the phone. But Skylar didn't know that Sheila had dialed Rachel in on a three-way call. On May 31st, 
2012, Skylar tweeted, quote, You're a two-faced bitch, and obviously fucking stupid if you thought I wouldn't find out. Something in Skylar's world was apparently brewing, and she retweeted someone saying, Won't miss anyone from school over summer, because if we're really friends, we'll hang out. If we aren't, we won't. Then she tweeted, Just know I know. And on June 10th, she tweeted, Hope you don't expect me to give a fuck anymore. Hashtag bye. All of these tweets signify that Skylar was obviously having it out in a very passive-aggressive manner with someone, but she never calls attention to that person or persons in her tweets. So it's worth noting right here, like, if you just go through the timeline of what these girls are posting on social media, and it's mostly on Twitter, but there's some other stuff on Facebook, but this is just, I mean, the most mundane things end up online, and then also the most juicy, passive-aggressive you know, back and forth starts going on where you have, you know, Skylar just tweeting really, you know, you can tell she's very agitated by somebody and all of this stuff always makes its way to the internet. So, you know, as many people rightly assume about this generation that's coming up in the digital age, they cannot resist living their life online. I, I feel like you just described the mission statement of Twitter. Everything starts out as a innocent ha-ha check this out, and then it boils up to this passive-aggressive argument that really has no substance, but people start getting angry, and you can say the just the smallest little thing, and if it's worded correctly, you can really piss people off. Yeah, and the one, actually the one person that I really recall this being like a major thing for is um, actually LeBron James. So some of you may not follow the NBA and I really don't either that much, but being in Ohio, uh, you kind of had to when he was here. He was famous for passive-aggressive tweeting his teammates. Um, At one point, it might have been 2016, it may have even been 2017, but when Kevin Love came to Cleveland to play with LeBron, things weren't going so well. And then you would see these tweets from LeBron, and you knew they were directed at Kevin, but he would never call him out specifically. So you'd even have high-profile NBA athletes online doing the same thing that these high school kids are doing. And it's just fascinating. It's a fascinating experiment in humanity to watch and witness how people act when they have this sort of anonymity in a way. I mean, in some of these cases, like you know who's who, but you don't have to be accountable for a face-to-face interaction when you say these things. For sure. It's a lot easier to say something online than it is to someone's face to get that reaction. And then that's exactly why it happens is you don't have that you don't have that face-to-face interaction you, you don't have that immediate um, what am I going to say next how do I cover my tracks if I said something out of context it's definitely a lot easier to talk crap online than it is to someone's face every time exactly this is still early days of you know Twitter and Facebook if you will. they'd been around for a little while but they're not what they are now I mean this is eight years ago which in technology terms, that's, you know, old, right? So here we are, people are starting that thought experiment and living online and really being, you know, connected to each other in a way that nobody was before. And you have to remember too, 2007 is when the iPhone comes out. And there had been smartphones before that, but about that point is when the smartphone game totally changes. So in about five more years, this is when like pretty much every high schooler has a smartphone now. And this is the group of people who are really starting to live online for the first time through Facebook, 
Twitter, Instagram, Snapchat, that, those things, you know, this is when it's really starting to, you know, come together in a sense. And now here we are today, eight years later, living with these platforms that are now more mature and people still living this way online. But this is really like that first group of probably, you know, high school age kids that are really, really grasping at this for the first time. A hundred percent. And eight years later, now these, now these are the adult users of Twitter that have 10 burner accounts and talk all kinds of smack. July 5th, 2012, Skylar attended her night shift at Wendy's. Dave Neese, Skylar's father, said that his daughter returned home after her shift and hugged both of her parents and told them she loved them. The following morning, her parents woke up and went to work. Later, in the afternoon of July 6th, Dave returned home and saw Skylar's bedroom door was still closed. Assuming she was just asleep, he knocked on her door to wake her up and said, Sky, come on, you gotta get up, but he received no answer. Dave proceeded to open the door and to his dismay, her bed did not appear to have been slept in at all. Dave immediately called his wife Mary. After speaking to her, he immediately called Sheila Eddie. Sheila answered on the first ring. Dave asked, Do you have any clue where Skylar is? Sheila responded, No. Dave pressed on asking, When's the last time you talked to her? Sheila told him the last time they spoke, it was around midnight. As he stood puzzled, he noticed that the screen to her window was missing, and the window was cracked about an inch. He headed outside and looked around for a moment. Skylar's bedroom window was at the ground level, maybe three to four feet off the ground. He walked over to a retaining wall that butted up against the driveway, and there he found a small bench. He immediately assumed that she had been stowing it there to help her climb back into her window. Yeah, so with... Well, the way that this apartment complex works, the parking lot or asphalt, if you will, is essentially like wrapped around most of the building. And the, her bedroom window is maybe four feet tops from the asphalt that meets the bottom of the building. So she can easily just pop the window and get out to the ground, no problem. So it's pretty ground floor as, as far as that window is concerned. And not far from where that window is, in that asphalt, you know, driveway, it meets a retaining wall. And then the retaining wall, you know, it's obviously there to retain. So on the other side, you know, the grade is a lot lower. So you, you go down about, you know, three, four feet over the retaining wall, you know, once you go over the other side, hiding behind it is this little bench. So Dave's out there thinking, well, here's this retaining wall. Here's this bench. My screen door is missing. You know, my screen's missing to the window. And the windows popped open about an inch. So clearly she was anticipating coming back and popping that window and getting inside without anybody knowing. Right. Yeah. It was all set up to where she could come home and just sneak back in. She left the window cracked so she could open it probably without making a lot of noise or a lot of commotion and conveniently had placed that bench there. But one question I have of you, did you ever sneak out of the house when you were a kid? Or do you just roll out and say, hey, later, parents? Um, I would just roll out. And honestly, I I still am and always was pretty straight-laced in that sense. I I never did anything super crazy as a kid. I would go hang out with my buddies, but we would just, the most trouble we would cause when we snuck out, we never did, like, you know, I never was an underage drinker or partier or anything like that. We would typically go around and just terrorize my neighborhood in terms of, like, uh, ding dong ditching and teeping people's houses and mm -hmm. stealing random artifacts out of people's yards and putting them on other yards or just keeping them if we thought they were cool. <laughs> that was the brunt of what we would do. What about you? Um, I can't claim to be quite as innocent. 
with this discussion. <laughs> I'm not going to go into great detail about some of the things that I did as a kid, but I never snuck out. We, I would always say, uh, I grew up with a single mom and I always would tell her where I was going or who I was hanging out with. But at that point in time, you had no phone to, or no cell phone, I should say, to keep in touch. And I had gained a lot of trust from my mom at that young age. You know, she knew we were probably up to no good at some point, but she knew that I knew what the line was not to cross as far as getting into big time trouble. So, but as a parent, I mean, as I, I know my kids really well, and I would say my son, he, he could care less. He's loving quarantine. He loves being home, and he he just doesn't, isn't going to leave on his you know own volition and just not tell anybody. My daughter, on the other hand, when she gets a little bit older, I'm going to have to be the dad just walking around the house looking for this kind of stuff to make sure she's not sneaking out. So in the next four to five years, yeah, <laughs> this is yet to come. Well, and the way my parents were... I don't know if it was laziness or if they just trusted me because I was always a good kid, but I kind of feel that the more you try to wrap your arms around your kids at that age and restrict their freedoms by trying to protect them, a lot of them rebel in other ways. And so it's not necess- it may backfire, I guess is what I'm trying to say. And so I'm thinking when my son gets old enough, the approach will be very similar. You know, just let me know where you're going. Make sure you're always answering your phone if I'm calling you. Make sure you always call me if I ask you to. But if you can do those things, I'm going to trust you to make the right decisions. You know, you're, you can't control people as much as you want to. You just can't. Like, they're their own people, especially at that age. They're discovering who they are for the first time, really. So you can't do that. And it seems like, in this case, Skylar had that same trust from her parents, from everything that I've read and listened to. It seems like her parents trusted her and she was a great student and she had no reason to be mistrusted and so she probably got a little extra leeway now sneaking out is one thing your parents will probably say no you're not leaving the house at midnight but most parents don't let their kids out at midnight by choice sure and by and by all accounts she was a very good student she's very studious and they probably she probably didn't give her parents a whole lot to worry about until that point of you know he checked her in her room, didn't look like she had been there to sleep at all, and then started finding these, you know, strange evidence that she's been sneaking out, and then really probably gets concerned at that point. Right, and so let's move on and start talking about that. Dave started to panic. The realization had set in that she had snuck out of her house, but she did not return that night. Something didn't feel right to him. Skylar had a shift at Wendy's that afternoon, but she never showed up. The manager called Dave to check if Skylar was coming into work that day. At that point, Dave and Mary decided it was time to call 911. Let's have a listen to that audio now. Long County 911, do you have an emergency? I have a 16-year-old daughter who apparently snuck out of her room last night. She has not been home, hasn't went to work, can't get a hold of her from any of her friends. I am scared to death. Has she done this before? Uh, No. So you can hear the panic in Dave's voice when he calls 911. Now, I took that clip from... ABC News, so there's a little bit of dramatic effect to it with the audio and such, uh, with the background music. But you get that sense, you know, he's, he is starting to panic. He's not lying. It's, you know, the sense of urgency is kicking in. His daughter's not there. She missed her shift at work. She never misses her shifts at work. And now is time, you know, where her behaviors are diverging from what they typically are and what they know of her. So he's starting to get a little panicked. Not long after she was reported missing, Sheila called Mary Neese, 
She had told Mary that she needed to tell her the truth about what happened to Skylar the last time they were together. Sheila proceeded to say that Skylar had snuck out to meet up with her and Rachel that night around 11 p.m. and go driving around Star City and get high. After they were done, they dropped Skylar off at the end of the road of her apartment complex so that they wouldn't wake her parents up around midnight. That was the last time Rachel or Sheila had seen Skylar. Sheila and her mother offered to help Mary and Dave Niece try to find Skylar. They went door-to-door asking neighbors if they'd seen anything, if anyone had any information as to where Skylar may be. After the immediate stress and pressure of the situation began to set in, Mary remembered that the apartment complex has video surveillance. The video footage was obtained from the apartment complex. It was extremely grainy, but it appeared to show Skylar Niece running from her apartment around 12.30 a.m., hopping into a sedan willingly. This was 30 minutes after Sheila had said that she dropped Skylar off. Police initially theorized that Skylar had been dropped off by Sheila, but then joined another group of friends, sneaking off for a second time that night. Since it appeared that Skylar left on her own accord, police do not activate an Amber Alert. Over the following days, Dave and Mary would appear on local television news stations, pleading for their daughter to come home. Several false sightings were reported, and on each one, Dave would get into his car and race to where they last reported seeing her. Skylar's friends were distraught, leaving her messages on her Facebook page. Sheila tweeted out, quote, was really waiting Skylar to come home today, accompanied by two sad face emojis. She called Skylar's parents, crying hysterically, and asked if she could come over. She asked to sit in Skylar's room. Mary sat with her on Skylar's bed as she cried. Weeks had passed, and still no sign of Skylar. Her parents were no longer of the belief that she had run away. No activity had happened on her bank card, and no traces of activity from her cell phone. Nobody knew where she was. Missing persons posters plastered Star City and nearby Morgantown. Some rumors were beginning to gain traction around town. Some people thought that maybe she had gotten drunk and fallen and hit her head, while others felt that perhaps she was followed and abducted on her way home, or maybe she had met somebody on the internet to meet up with them. Interestingly enough, there was a potential break in the case. Two bank robberies occurred in the nearby town of Blacksville. There was a rumor that money from the robberies was used to secure drugs for a local teen party. Police investigated this lead. The lead came up fruitless. As time had passed and no major new leads were coming in, the nieces began to start thinking about Skylar's relationship with her friends, especially Sheila. Sheila had started to become a bad influence in Skylar's life. She was sneaking out, getting high, etc. At one point, the nieces found marijuana in the pocket of Skylar's clothes. Skylar claimed it was Sheila's. The trio of close friends may not have been so close after all. Some of Skylar's other friends claimed that Skylar was slowly getting pushed out of the group, becoming the third wheel to Rachel and Sheila. Many of the photos seen showing Skylar, Rachel, and Sheila depict Skylar off in the distance as Sheila and Rachel are close together. Rachel and Sheila would show up to school dressed similarly and not tell Skylar. Small subtle jabs at Sky that may have been meant to irritate her on purpose. This is where the teens' lives playing out on social media starts to get the attention of local police. Following weeks of no solid leads, police began to turn their investigation toward Skylar's friends. Friends that were not initially suspects until police began to comb through their social media accounts to see if there were any obvious signs of trouble amongst the friends. Prior to her vanishing, Skylar's social media was littered with posts like, There's just something about you I can't fucking stand. Another post reading, People can be so mean for absolutely no reason. And the final post from any of her accounts on July 5th at 10.48pm read, You doing shit like that is why I will never completely trust you. So let's pause for a moment here and talk briefly about 
you know, where we're at. So there's no new leads. There's a bunch of theories about what may have happened to her. So initially, you know, people around town, police, etc., are thinking that, you know, she snuck off for a second time that night. She may be out partying with a different group of people. Something bad happens, and now they need to figure out what's going on. And then they start looking through the social media and start trying to comb through it and figure out, you know, is there something more here that we're missing, something we're not being told? And you find these series of posts from Skylar that, again, they're passive-aggressive, something's brewing, but they can't quite piece it together yet. Now, Craig, what did you think when you first saw, you know, this little pattern brewing here where things just aren't lining up quite right, but then there's also that weird, she left on her own, but she doesn't come back. So, you know, where is this going? It It's very interesting that the timestamp for her last tweet says that this is the kind of shit that is why I will never completely trust you. And drawing the correlation that the, the authorities are doing here, um, I, I, it's good investigative work on their part to, to find this pattern in her social media tweets and things like that. And I'm, is July 5th, was that the day or the night that she disappeared? Was, that was her last tweet before she supposedly disappeared around midnight or was seen on camera running away at 1230? Yeah, good point. So July 5th is the last night where she goes to Wendy's and comes home, sees her parents, goes into her room. July 6th at midnight is when she disappears. So it's like that overnight time frame. So you're late into July 5th, the morning of July 6th. Okay, so this was her last her very last tweet or post before she went missing. Yep. And it's directed at her friends. So, I mean, from, from the, the, the investigation standpoint, you know, I mean, it's been a few weeks since she disappeared with nothing, but at least they've circled back to this last tweet and, and pieced together the, the time from her last post to the time she disappeared, which I mean, it, it makes the friends, you know, very viable suspects, like should start pressing them a little harder. Yeah, so let's talk about the investigation where police kind of go from here. Police also combed through Rachel and Sheila's phone records. They were curious to see if there would be any clues that they could turn up here, and something stuck out to them as odd. Following the disappearance of Skylar, radio silence. Neither of them mentioned her at all, which is an extremely strange thing considering they were all best friends. As police turned their attention towards Sheila, the nieces were telling police to leave her alone, that she was just grieving. However, what the nieces weren't aware of is that the FBI, now helping the case, they were finding inconsistencies in the story of both Rachel and Sheila. Police had obtained footage from local businesses and found Sheila's car driving past a gas station at 12.39 a.m. The problem with this is that her car was headed north, away from Star City. She had previously told police that they stayed within city limits driving around getting high. But was this a real clue, or did she just forget to tell police? In addition to the video footage, police also found that Sheila and Rachel's phones were pinging on cell towers located across state lines in the town of Blacksville, West Virginia, 45 minutes away from where they said they were. When police began to question the pair on their inconsistency, they effectively said, Oh yeah, we forgot we went there. Sheila also told police that Skylar was not with them when they went to Blacksville. However, Rachel said she was with them. Finally, police are starting to find some inconsistencies. Sheila swore to police that her story was not wrong. She even volunteered to take a polygraph test. Sheila took the polygraph test and failed it. Police also convinced Rachel to take a polygraph test. 
Her father took her to the police station, but on the way there, she jumped out of a moving car and fled. The nieces are informed by police at this point that Sheila and Rachel appear to be hiding some information. The nieces begin posting on social media, trying to put pressure on the girls. Their posts talk about karma and ask for them to tell the police what they know. This also gets the attention of other classmates and townspeople, putting pressure on the girls to admit what they actually know. Pressure finally hits a high point about six months after Skylar's disappearance. Rachel cracked. Her mother called 911 because her daughter was going on a violent rampage in the home. Rachel was admitted to a local psychiatric hospital on suspicion that she may be suicidal. The happenings of that visit are never revealed, but upon her release, she asked to be taken to the police station. We have the 911 call. Have a listen. I have an issue with a 16-year-old daughter of mine. I can't control her anymore. She's screaming. She's running through the neighborhood. Give me the phone. No, this is over. This is over. Hurry up. Oh, no, she just gave me a block. Oh, God. Hurry up, please. As you hear the 911 call, Rachel's in the background just screaming hysterically. And apparently she hits her mother. And I don't know if she actually really did develop a black eye, but she says on that call, I'm going to have a black eye. So there was some, you know, massive emotions brewing over on Rachel's end over here. No doubt you can hear in that audio that she's just completely unhinged, like off the rails, crazy screaming and sounds like she's actually being attacked but her mother's trying to stop her something that we don't want to lose sight of here is you know rachel is a theater actress you know she's in the school plays and she's a performer and you know at some point all this pressure is mounting against her and you know she's starting to hit this this breaking point you know i don't know if you ever noticed this but actors and actresses tend to be very emotional people by by default. So, you know, here you go. Like, all these emotions are just starting to come out of her. And the stories aren't lining up. Police are putting pressure on them. You know, the nieces are getting the community involved and also putting pressure on these two girls to, to tell more than, than what they've told so far. And, you know, it's really eating up at her. Yeah, I understand the angle of her being, a, you know, into theater and working on the drama team at school. But just on that short snippet of audio... That doesn't sound like an act to me. That sounds like somebody that's finally cracked, finally just really, I mean, screaming bloody murder. If she's auditioning for a part just based on that audio, it would have been brilliant for a horror movie. I mean, you could just hear it as almost blood-curdling screams. Oh, yeah. And my point there isn't that this this part's an act. My point is that emotion, any emotion that she's been keeping inside of her at this point, is starting to seep out as that pressure is being put on on the girls. Rachel, a high school drama star and lead in the school play, could no longer keep up her act. An extremely nervous Rachel Shove's first words to police were, We stabbed her. The plot to kill Skylar began months earlier in science class. The girls didn't know how to use guns, so they decided they'd use knives. They prepared for their murder in the days leading up by gathering supplies like paper towels, knives, a shovel, bleach, and wipes. The girls began texting with Skylar the night of July 5th and finally talked her into sneaking out with them to go get high. Sheila and Rachel hid their knives in their hoodies, wrapped in towels so they wouldn't cut themselves. They arrived at her apartment. They were the sedan seen picking up Skylar in the grainy surveillance video. They drove from Star City through Blacksville and across state lines to Brave, Pennsylvania. The girls enter a park. They pull off the side of the road and exit the vehicle. They walk up to a small area just off the road and sit down to smoke marijuana. Sheila and Rachel tell Skylar they forgot their lighter. 
Skylar says she can get hers from the car, so she gets up and begins walking back to the car when Sheila and Rachel get up behind her. They count one, two, three, and begin stabbing Skylar. Skylar takes off running, but Rachel tackles her, and the girls continue stabbing her. Skylar screams, Why? and the girls try to slit her throat. They said it would kill her quicker if they cut her jugular. They waited for her to stop making gurgling noises and try to bury her. The ground was much too hard, so they drag her body to the side of the road and cover her with branches, rocks, and leaves. They change their clothes, wipe down the car, and leave. When asked for the motive for murdering their best friend, they said, quote, because we just didn't like her, end quote. When pressed on it, nothing more came of it. Rachel was not arrested at this point because police had nothing concrete to prove her story. Sheila was also not arrested. Police wanted more information, so they got Rachel to wear a wire and try to get Sheila to incriminate herself, but instead they took selfies and posted them on social media. Police finally catch another break. They found traces of blood in Sheila's car. Rachel continued to cooperate with police, giving police the location of Skylar's body. As police await the results of the DNA testing for the blood found in Sheila's car, the city mourns her on what would be her 17th birthday by having a vigil. That same day, the nieces are informed of the breaks in the case. It was not clear if the nieces knew it was her friends at this point, but the public was definitely not aware. While everyone was mourning, Sheila was posting to social media, quote, worst day of my whole life, and, quote, rest easy, Skylar, you will always be my best friend. She also taunted police on social media, writing, quote, Wonder if there's a law and order SVU where they don't figure it out. And, quote, we really did go on three, end quote. Sheila wasn't aware that the DNA the police had found was indeed a match to Skylar. Armed with all the evidence they needed, police immediately moved to arrest Sheila. She was exiting a Cracker Barrel with her mother. She was arrested right in the parking lot. So police failed to uncover a real motive for the brutal slaying of Skylar niece. But Skylar's journal may have revealed that she knew something that the girls didn't want to get out. Skylar wrote about a sexual relationship between Sheila and Rachel. One night at Rachel's house, the three girls had been drinking. Skylar allegedly walked in on her friends having lesbian sex. The theory is that Skylar was going to out the girls to the school, which is possible considering Skylar sent a few posts on social media like, quote, just know I know, and, quote, I'd tell the whole school all the shit I have on everyone, which is a lot, hashtag, if I could get away with it. It's worth noting that Skylar's parents and the police don't necessarily believe this is the motive. Police believe they disliked her and wanted to see if they could just get away with it. In court, Rachel apologized. Take a listen to the audio of Rachel's statement, as well as Dave Neese's response. Mr. Ann, got anything that you wish to offer by way of testimony, proffer, or statement before sentencing in this matter? Yes, sir. Rachel would like to speak to the court first, and then I would like to follow up after she finishes with her statement. Very well, Ms. Schoff, I would advise you at this time of your right to allocution. Simply stated, that is your right to make any statement that you may wish the court to consider before it passes sentence in this matter. Uh, you may speak at this time. You can remain seated if you want. I guess you're not on a rolling chair, so I'd say fine. I don't know if there's a proper way to make this apology because there are not even words to describe the guilt and remorse that I feel each day for what I've done. The person that did that was not the real me, not the person I am, not what I'm made of and not what I believe in. I don't think I ever thought this would actually happen. I became scared and caught up in something that I did not want to do. 
I never realized the gravity of my actions and how many people I've hurt. I hurt the niece family and those who love Skylar. I hurt my parents and shamed my family. I hurt my extended family and all of my friends who loved me. I hurt my teachers and those who believed in me. I hurt my church family, my community, and those who trusted me. And I hurt my Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. May God bring eternal peace to Skylar and the entire niece family. Again, I'm so sorry, and I pray each day for everyone involved, and I pray each day for forgiveness. Yes, Rachel Schoff did tell us where Skylar was. Yes, Rachel Schoff did cooperate. And Rachel Schoff also murdered my daughter in cold blood. Skylar would not be where she was if it wasn't for Rachel Schoff. You said yourself, Your Honor, this is first-degree murder. She should not give any leniency, and she can take her apologies and everything else and sit on them because that's about what they're worth to me and my wife. She has done nothing but make our lives a living hell since this day one. She did cooperate in the end because she knew that it was closing in on her, and yes, she would be caught. That's the only reason she feels remorse. Your Honor, I ask you to give her 40 years and plus if you can. Thank you, sir. Sheila pled not guilty at her arraignment. However, she would later change her plea to guilty to first-degree murder. She never apologized for murdering Skylar. Sheila was sentenced to life in prison. Once the dust settled following the murder of Skylar, Skylar's law was passed in West Virginia. The law requires Amber Alerts for all missing children, not just for those believed to be kidnapped. The nieces also erected a memorial in the spot where their daughter's body was found. What do you make of the way that things unfold there at the end, from the murder itself to the supposed theory of why they really murdered her? I'm a little baffled that they don't think that the motive was her catching her friends in the lesbian sex act. I think that that's plenty of motive for them to want to kill her, especially if she's sending out threats like, just know that I know and I tell the whole school if I could get away with it. I I think that's threatening enough to someone if they want to keep a secret badly enough, especially with them being young and in high school. Yeah, yeah, exactly. That's what I was going to say. You have to remember these are high school kids whose brains aren't, you know, totally formed (laughs) and, uh, you know, something like that could really get under someone's skin. Now, the nieces are on record as saying that Skylar had other friends who were gay and she didn't care. So they didn't think that the motive had credibility because they felt like, well, she has other friends that are gay and she doesn't go around, you know, screaming about that to people. However, I think that's the wrong view. I think that you have to look at it from Sheila and Rachel's point of view. Did they want to be known to be gay? Because that's that's where it really where it really lies, right? Now, some of the stuff that you read and things are sensationalized. So perhaps this piece of the story is sensationalized and that the tweets and things that they discover from Skylar don't necessarily indicate that she knew this or or that this is what she was referring to, I guess is what I'm trying to say in those posts. And so Maybe it's made to look a certain way, but if it is true that she knew this and was going on social media and posting about it and Rachel and Sheila were getting frustrated, then perhaps this is playing out for that reason. Yeah, exactly. And it's hard to put yourself in the mind of Sheila and Rachel. I mean, they're the only two people that could answer that question, but I can see it being the motive for wanting to kill someone if they really, really wanted to keep that secret, but just... 
you know, come full circle back around to what they said. We just didn't like her. Can you, I, I can't imagine killing someone just because I didn't like them and being young. And like you said, in high school, they're not fully developed or not fully thinking about how things are going to play out in the future, but they essentially threw their entire lives away because they killed someone that they didn't like. Exactly. Point blank. Yep. And these kids were using drugs and, and drinking alcohol and, you know, we just know that they would get high and drink and maybe that was it or maybe there was more to it. And when you're that age, you know, those things have a major effect on the way that your brain develops. So depending on how long they've been doing that, it's possible that it just, you know, it clouded their judgment. It, it does happen. I mean, you're a young child. Your brain is still developing. Those things, are they do happen. I mean, as mild of a drug as marijuana seems to be, you know, it it can be mind-altering. There have been studies that show that it does hurt the development of your brain when you take it at a young age. Now, I don't necessarily buy that as like why this is happening or anything like that, but it's just something that I wanted to point out. The other thing that I wanted to talk about was during Rachel, her sentencing, you know, she turns to the niece family and she provides a statement and, you know, essentially she basically says how she's sorry. Now, again, she was a theater performer, right? And this easily could be a final performance for her where she's really not sorry, but she feels like she needs to put on this act, you know, in front of the niece family and in front of the court because that's what she does. And getting a bad reception for all the hell that she put on this family and put them through may have been eating up at her more than her actual, you know, resentment for what she really did. It might be more about her fragile ego than it is about the actual act of killing their friend. I, I can totally see that being the reason she gave that you know, probably a very scripted in her mind apology to the niece family. And, you know, essentially it is her, her last, you know, words to the family and to the public. I don't know if there's been any more interviews past this point with her, but they're 17 years old and Rachel got sentenced to 30 years and, and Sheila gets life. And it's just, it's mind boggling for me to think about, you know, two young adults or young teenagers, not adults getting, like I said, they're throwing their entire life away because they didn't like someone. And we've talked about this too before, people getting locked up for so many years. How do you feel about someone that young getting put into the prison system for that long of time? Do you think there's any rehabilitation possible for that, people of that age? Because essentially, Sheila, she's facing a life sentence. She's never getting out. I mean, there there could be the possibility of parole. I don't have those details but let's say Rachel does her full 30 years. She's getting out of prison at what? She's going to almost be 50 years old at that point. Yeah. She'll be in her forties. So, all right. A couple of thoughts before I answer that question. So Rachel's sentenced to 30 years. Sheila's sentenced to life. Now when Sheila is sentenced and when she admits guilt, she never says anything to the nieces. She doesn't admit remorse or anything. And the nieces are on record as saying they actually respected her for that because they knew she wasn't feeding them a line of bullshit, that she wasn't sorry. She didn't feel sorry for that, and they didn't want to hear a fake apology. So they actually respect her a little bit more for sort of owning up to that, which I thought was really interesting. As far as could she get rehabilitated? I mean, anybody could be rehabilitated if they want to be. Does she want to be? I don't think so. I think that she actually doesn't give a shit. She's so narcissistic, and that she thinks she's such hot shit, she just doesn't care. And I just feel like that's just not going to happen. And 
uh, Dave Neese had said, you know, Skylar was murdered by Sheila and he was going to, and, and Skylar was their only child in that he was going to make sure that even long after they are gone, somebody is there to represent that family to keep Sheila behind bars when she's eligible for parole. Honestly, in my opinion, that's good to hear because that's a great point. I didn't know that she had nothing to say to the Neese family whatsoever and was not remorseful. And I can see from Dave Neese's standpoint that why he would respect something like that in that moment, even though she's not really saying anything, she's kind of owning what she did. So I, I can kind of see where that is coming from. But yeah, you know, good on him too for making sure she stays where she is because she's dangerous. Even at 17, she shows no remorse for taking someone someone's life from them, you know. She could do it again very easily. And the same with Rachel. She was an accomplice to that, got 30 years. I don't know if we're going to be talking about it again in 30 years, but she could very well, you know, associate herself with someone that does the same thing again. Who knows? That's it for this week. Thank you for listening. Thanks for supporting the show. We really appreciate it. Don't forget to leave us your feedback, subscribe, and if you can, support the show. That's it for this week. Rest in peace, Skylar. Stay safe.